You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Uh, now we have, uh, we have the immense privilege and great delight of spending tonight and tomorrow uh, studying God. Uh, I mean, of all subjects, this is really extraordinary and wonderful. So thank God for that. He has kindly allowed us to do this. Uh, you can't study God unless God is prepared to reveal himself to you. And he has revealed himself in such a way that we can draw close to him and know who he is. When we say study God, I'm not expecting an exam or something like this. Uh, I'm expecting us to know God better, to know God. The aim of our life is to know God. Now, to do this, uh, I've got uh, four topics, and you'll see outlined there. The first one tonight is the sovereign God. Uh, We go on to talk about God's holiness and the promises of God and uh, the love of God as well. Uh, and in each of these, I'm going to finish with a reflection on certain things that we ought to do and have, so that'll come uh, in a little while. Uh, but uh, And uh, a couple of these are concentrated on one passage, but tonight is a grand tour. It's like going over the whole of Australia in one hour or less, actually. Uh, so we're going to be referring to many, many Bible verses. And tonight, I have an assistant who's going to help me to do this, the famous Ingrid, who is just over here, microphone in hand, yes, indeed. And when I uh, refer to a Bible verse and invite her to do so, uh, she's going to read the Bible verse for us. And actually, what I've found is when we do this, that suddenly the speaker doesn't matter much because it happens to be the Word of God which is powerful. The Word of God is strong. As we listen to what God says, it's far more powerful than what any sort of human speaker is is saying to you. So I'm sure that you'll really appreciate it as we make this grand tour of all sorts of bits of the Bible uh, with the help of Ingrid and me sort of throwing the ball in her direction so that she can do this for us. Now, uh, uh, we must imagine, I think, uh, no, imagine is the wrong word, we must uh, recognize that this room is filled with God, that God is here, It's not as though he's out there somewhere and we're looking at him, but rather he is here present with us. And that as he is here present with us, he is prepared to disclose himself to us, to make himself known to us. Uh, Holly, where are you? I loved what you said. I loved what everyone said, of course, but I love what you said. If you love God, you really want to know who he is. I think I've quoted you correctly. If you love God, you really want to know who he is. And we have the privilege of doing just that. Now, in the world in which we live, there are people who say there is no God. There are people who say there are many gods. There are quite a number of people who say there is one God, but then who is this one God? Because uh, some religions have one view of him, other religions have another. Where does the truth lie? Who is the true God? who reveals himself to us. We can't achieve this by our own intellect. We must hear from him. In the 1960s, it was declared by Time magazine, which was very authoritative back in the 1960s, uh, that God is dead. 
Well, it looked as though, and the reason for saying that was to set people free. Because if God is dead, then you can do whatever you like. No one minds. And no one's going to hold you to account. And so it was a question of human freedom, human divinity, if you like, against God. God's dead, we can do as we please. And much of the history of these last uh, decades could be written about human freedom and uh, people just doing as they please because God has been declared to be dead. Interestingly, although atheism became a big thing, particularly in the beginning of the 21st century, it doesn't really capture the hearts of that many people. People do want there to be something more than ourselves as long as you can control the something more than ourselves. And so we get people saying things as silly as this, you know, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I've never heard a thing more stupid. But I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, to say, yes, no, I, I agree, there must be something there, but it doesn't interfere with my freedom, because my freedom is what matters to me. I must do what I want to do. And I'm a good person, by the way, and therefore I want to make a difference. Ever heard people say that? I'm, what's the aim of your life? I met a very, very clever lady once who was a, who was a lawyer and had worked in New York and, and all around the world. She was very clever indeed. And I said to her, what, you know, what, what's, what are you hoping to achieve? She said, I want to make a difference. I thought Hitler made a difference, darling. Uh, really? I want to make a difference. What? It's ridiculous. But that's all you're left with when you, God is dead and human beings take control. But we don't believe that because we have the Bible. In the Bible, God has revealed himself and we meet tonight as uh, people who have the Bible and people who can listen to what God says and people whom God is going to further reveal himself to us. Who is this God? Or, to quote the immortal words of folly, if you love God, you really want to know who he is. Yeah. So, Let's get underway. First of all, look at the list of things here. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of history. Have you got it there? Open for you. He is the Lord of salvation. He is the Lord of the future. He is the Lord of glory. And I ask the question at the end, well then, what's faith? What is faith? We'll come to that. So, you ready for this quick tour? Ready? So, first of all, the first thing to observe about him is he is the Lord of creation. Everything comes from him. It's not as though creation is there and he is over here and they're sort of looking at each other. No, he is the Lord of creation. Let's start with Genesis chapter 1. Not the whole of it. Good evening, everyone. I'm Ingrid and I'll be reading the Bible for us this evening. And we're starting off in Genesis chapter 1 from verses 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then God said, and God said, and God said, and the whole thing sprang into existence. It was not as though God took some... When you make something, you take something already existing and you make it. We, we can only make things out of things that exist. God made the created order. He made all things by just speaking. 
The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. God spoke. Later on we discover that the speech of God is Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We discover that God is three in one and one in three we discover. He's not like us, is he? That's very important. God is not just a human being magnified. Many people think that, you know. Well, he's just like one of us. He's just bigger than us. No, no, no. God is utterly different from us, and he is responsible for all things. What did he make them out of? Next one. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, the one who gives the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence. Read, read, it, read that little bit again. God calls things, things into, into existence that do not exist. He calls things into existence that don't exist. You can't do that. He did it. Everything. Everything here. Everyone here is dependent upon the God who creates all things. In, uh, in, if you read doctrine textbooks, this is called the doctrine of ex nihilo, that God made all things out of nothing. Latin, ex nihilo. Uh, I tell you that to make you feel superior when you go and say, oh, this is ex nihilo. It always makes you feel good. There is only one God. There is... It's not that there's no God. It's not that there are many gods having fights. Some of the some of the some of the creation stories were about gods fighting each other or gods making making the world out of a dead body or something. No, no, no. There is one God who is so powerful. He has made everything. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Correct. Okay, so that's the God who introduces himself. And he does it by his word. He speaks and it happens. He is the Lord of nature, Psalm 104. Psalm 104 from verses 26 to 30. There the ships move about, and Leviathan, which you formed to play there, all of them wait for you to give them their food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your breath, they are created, and you renew the surface of the ground. All things depend upon God for their food. You give them their food in due season. When you turn away from them, they die and turn back to the dust. Everything on all creation depends upon God for their continued existence. He is the Lord of nature. He sustains all things. Um, I know I'm getting these out of order, but I'm testing you, you see. Psalm 119, verses 89 to 91. She's good so far. Yeah. Now listen to this, Psalm 119, verses 89-91. Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. 
Your faithfulness is for all generations. You established the earth, and it stands firm. Your judgments stand firm today, for all things are your servants. There's some rotten pigeons that come and dwell in the front of our house. I keep trying to get rid of them. They're the servants of the living God. All things are his servants. Everything depends upon him. All things serve him, even pigeons, sparrows, tiny things, great things. He upholds all things by his word. When we have to move things around, we get something and push things around. He just speaks and the things happen. The most powerful people in the world are people who just speak and things happen. Isn't that right? That's power. Well, God just speaks and he sustains the world by his speech. Okay, he is all-powerful. Psalm 135, verse 6. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. He does whatever he pleases. He is all-seeing. You can't escape his vision. He sees all things. Jeremiah 16, verse 17. For my gaze takes in all their ways. They are not concealed from me, and their iniquity is not hidden from my sight. Okay, all things are visible to God, even the inward things. He knows what you're thinking, saying, he remembers it all. And then, in this beautiful beginning to Psalm 139, Psalm 139 verses 1 to 6, sorry we can't read the whole psalm, but it's just absolutely magnificent, and think of it as you listen to it or as you see it in front of you. Think of it as it applies to you. This is you. And this is what the Lord, how the Lord relates to you. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. You can never escape him, thank God. He has always got his eye upon you. Wherever you go, you are his, he knows you. And even before you were born, he knew you. Before a word is spoken, he knows what you're going to say. This is our God. He is the Lord of history. He is all-powerful. He's in control of all things. Uh, the prophet Daniel uh, had a message for and uh, Nebuchadnezzar about uh, the king. You know, he was the great and powerful king and thought he was the king of all things. And Daniel said this to him uh, about himself. Daniel chapter 4, verses 24 to 25. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my lord, the king. 
You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. Okay, here's the, here's the president of some great nation. It's Nebuchadnezzar, the great king. And there is a greater king than he who will bring him down. Pride, human pride is futile, fatuous, stupid because God is in charge and what a God he is. Uh, he has purposes. It's not as though he's in charge and can't work out what he's doing. God is a God of purpose, Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And Ephesians 1.11, Ephesians 1.11. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Okay, I love that verse. Well, I, I love all the verses in the Bible, but I love this verse particularly. Uh, he, who is God? He works everything out in accordance with the purposes of his will. Has he got the power to do it? Yes. Does he just float along and think, oh, I might do this tomorrow? No. He works all things out in accordance with the purposes of his will. All things work together for good. His will is good. All things work together for good, Romans 8, 28. And he works all things according to the purposes of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. So powerful is he, and here's one of the key issues that we're going to be thinking of during this, uh, these sessions. So powerful is he that he doesn't deny human freedom. What we're, not, we're not talking here about a God who simply takes away all your freedoms. He enables human beings to have the right sort of freedom. Now, here's a negative way. This particular one is, is uh, negative here, but uh, you'll see what I'm getting at. Uh, it's to do with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the great king of Egypt. Uh, the Israelites were his slaves. God said, let them go. Uh, Pharaoh was not inclined to let them go, you remember. Now, two verses that we need to put in juxtaposition with each other here. Uh, Exodus 8.32 but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let them go. Who was responsible for not letting them go? Pharaoh. Good. Now, the next verse, Exodus 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. Okay, Pharaoh, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, is this a contradiction? Is it, uh, is it different times or something like this? No, rather, what we're seeing here, and we see it in a number of other places too, is the way in which God is so powerful he can take even human free will or freedom and incorporate it into his purposes. Uh, there's a bit of uh, biblical arithmetic to learn here. It's 100% your effort and 100% God. Not 50-50, not 90-10. 100% you do it. And when you've done it, you say, oh, only God could have helped me do that. This is brought together in the next verse, Philippians chapter 2, 
Philippians chapter 2, verses, uh, you tell me, Ingrid, it's 12, 12 and 13. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Listen to this carefully. Uh, first of all, read verse 12. Stop. Go. <laughs> I mean, read verse 12 and stop. Uh, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. You do it with fear and trembling. It's your business. 100% you. Now listen to the next verse. Very next verse. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, according to his good purpose. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to work and so forth and so on. That relationship, which is unique, I mean, what else is like it, is a relationship between human beings where we have true freedom, but it is freedom within the freedom of God, within the purposes of God. He respects us and he blesses us at one and the same time. Even evil isn't outside God's scope. Uh, Isaiah chapter 10 is all about Assyria, who were sort of the Nazis of the ancient world back then. Uh, they're very nice Assyrians today, but this was back then. Uh, and uh, Isaiah chapter 10 is about how the Assyrians come onto Israel, God's people, and God's people are being punished by God taking the Assyrians and using them. And listen uh, to chapter 10, verse 5, for example, is, uh, how God puts it. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my wrath. Yeah, woe to Assyria. They ought not to be behaving like this but I'm going to use their bad behavior. God doesn't create evil. He is not the author of evil. He must never attribute evil to God, but evil does not, does not uh, sort of overcome him. God takes the evil of human hearts and uses it for his own good purposes. In this case, the punishment of his people. Well, such is the power and majesty of this God, the God, the Lord of history. What about the Lord of salvation? For, as you know, human beings from the very beginning, in, uh, recorded in Genesis 3, uh, sought to make themselves gods. Uh, taking the tree, the, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil is uh, a way of saying, I decide what is good and evil. So it's God who decides what's good and evil, but human beings said, I'm going to do it. I will decide what's good and evil. That was the significance of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil. Okay. So from the beginning, humankind is choosing to be gods, choosing to be frustrating to the true God, fusing, uh, uh, living in alienation from the true God. This means that we are helpless, depraved, yes, you too, and doomed. Uh, Paul refers to this in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, where he describes what the Christians were when they were without God. So listen to how he describes the, the, the human race without God. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. You were dead. You weren't sick. You weren't, sin didn't make you sick, it made you dead. No hope. The dead have no hope. You're dead. In tre- and then it says you follow the ways of this world, you follow the evil powers of the air, the spirits at work. You are enslaved, far from having the knowledge of good and evil and ruling the world, telling everyone what to do, you are in fact slaves, doomed and depraved, dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world and the powers of the air, the world, the flesh and the devil. That's who human beings have been and are without God. And so not only does the Bible begin with the massive story of the fall, it begins also in chapter 4 of Genesis, well indeed in chapter 3, with God sending forth the message that he intends to save his people. And so from the very beginning there is evil, Cain, killing Abel, but there's also the line of Seth, the next son of Adam and Eve, and the way in which... These two lines go on, culminating in the first place with Noah who was saved when all the race is brought under judgment from God and deservedly so, to Abraham and then to Israel as it grew and Moses and then to David and to Solomon and all the great narrative of the Old Testament and the promises of the Old Testament, the covenants which are promises and more of that tomorrow uh, and until there comes the moment of salvation. Now, uh, this, this is everywhere, of course, in the, uh, in the Old Testament. I've just asked for Psalm 105, verses 7 to 11. This is very, it's unfair to the psalm just to pick up a little bit like that, but here we go, just to give you a taste of it. Psalm 105, verses 7 to 11. He is the Lord our God. His judgments govern the whole earth. He remembers his covenant forever the promise he ordained for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, swore to Isaac, and confirmed to Jacob as a decree and to Israel as a permanent covenant. I will give the land of Canaan to you as your inherited portion. And so forth and so on. Uh, the covenants of God. The word covenant we'll hear about tomorrow is, uh, is just a word for promise. The promises of God. You know, you can't rely on my promises, I'm sorry to say. I could be dead tomorrow, that'd be no good, and I may not keep my promises. In fact, no one here keeps their promises perfectly, but God does. When he makes a promise, you can trust his promises. And so, the story of the Old Testament, we see God making promises and the unfolding promises of God until in the New Testament, we see where these promises come to their astonishing, surprising, uh, awe-inspiring culmination. 
Now, uh, we hear about God's intentions in Ephesians, again, turning there, Ephesians 1 verse 5, and the culmination of his promises. Thanks, Ingrid. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. He predestined us before the creation of the world to be his sons, his daughters. He predestined us for salvation. He chose us before the foundation of the world for salvation. Our salvation, in the end, yes, of course, we choose, but we choose for he has first chosen us. And how does he do this? He does it through the coming into the world of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection. He does that through the mighty acts of God in saving us and then applying that salvation to us. Saving and applying. And if you are saved, then both those things are yours. Um, Romans 8, 28 to 30, please. I know we've skipped a couple of things there. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The great work of God in the death and resurrection of his son. 1 Timothy 2 tells us about that, doesn't it, by the way? It's a verse I skipped over, so let's have it. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, is it? Yes, thanks. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Okay, so there's Jesus dying as a ransom for all. How does this apply to you? Because you are chosen, because God calls you, brings you to new birth, because he justifies you, because he glorifies you. God saves you through the death of Jesus and applies this salvation to you through the mighty power of his Holy Spirit and so brings you home in glory and more of that in due course. So God is the great, the great saviour. Now God is not only the Lord of salvation, he is the Lord of our future, of the future. Uh, time, you see, has a grip on us, doesn't it? Time's a very funny thing. You can't grip it, you can't hold it, uh, you can't stop it and say, stop, I enjoy this moment here, let me stop in it. No, you can't do that. It just keeps on unfolding. The past is unchangeable. You can't do anything about the past. You can't stop the present. And you don't know what the future will be. Time is a very, it's gotten us beaten, but it hasn't got God beaten. One of the great passage, all passages in the Bible are great. What a stupid thing to say. But one of the things that, one of the ones that I love best is Psalm 90, Psalm 90, which is about God and time and God and all eternity. Let's hear a little bit from Psalm 90 now, and uh, it's uh, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. From eternity to eternity, you are God. 
before all time. Indeed, you can say, I believe, that God invented time. He created time when he created the world. He lives in time. The Lord Jesus lives in time. He controls time. Uh, we have a few gifts that help to control time. We have memory to look back and we have imagination to look forward. But we can't control time. Only God can do that. He is in charge of all things. And uh, 2 Peter 3, 8-10, what does that say? Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day no, sorry, go on. Yes, yes. Sorry. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Mm. So God is uh, a thousand years is one day, and one day is a thousand years. God was going to end this time. Uh, he's waiting with patience that all may repent. And Psalm 90 verse 4, go back to Psalm 90 now. Psalm 90 verse 4, how does that finish off this for us? For in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday yeah. that passes by, like a few hours of the night. <laughs> a thousand years are just yesterday for the Lord. So great is he. He is in charge of all time. The very thing that you can't, you can't do anything about, he's in charge of. Good to be on his side, wouldn't it? Don't make bad enemies. That's a good rule. If you make God your enemy, that's a very stupid thing to do. Make sure he's your friend, not your enemy. For he is in charge of all things. And then finally, as we look at this brief picture of God, and there are many other ways and much else we could say, we come to the Lord of glory. Now, uh, glory... You and I sort of, or some of us do at least, many of us do, hunger for glory. Glory means reputation. Glory means people glorifying us. That, that great moment when people smile at us and, and, or we may wear a sacred robe of some sort as the vice chancellor or the chancellor gives us our uh, degree, you know, a diploma of arts in failures or something or other. And and it's and mum and dad greet you and and there's photos taken and it's all glory, it's all glory for about ten minutes. Uh, we hunger for glory, we hunger for a reputation, we hunger for the admiration of others. We want to be liked by others. We want to be worshipped even by others. That will set us apart because we are so important and such significant people. People listen to us. We hunger for glory. But only God is glorious and only he gives glory that is worth having. He is the God of glory. Uh, listen to this uh, one God. What have we got here? Psalm, uh, Psalm 115, verses 1 to 3. Yes, please. Listen to this. Listen carefully what the Bible is saying to you. Yes. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. 
and does whatever he pleases. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, not to us, but to him belongs glory. The world tricks you. The world, the world makes you do things you don't really want to do by glorifying you, making you really important, giving you... Look, if you keep this a secret, I've had some magnificent titles in my time. You die for them. Are you ready? You go into the governor's house or the governor general's house and who are you? I've done all this. I am, are you ready, the most, not just the, the most reverend Peter Frederick Jensen, THL, A-sharp prize, BD, honours, MA, honours, Doctor of Philosophy, Oxford University, <laughs> Archbishop of Sydney, Metropolitan of New South Wales. <laughs> and you know what it's worth? Beg your pardon, just wait. <laughs> Say it again, because it's true. Was it true, was it? I did, it was a lady's voice I heard, but go on. <laughs> Nothing. Agreed? Absolute garbage. Nothing. If you believe in that sort of stuff, you are a fool. You're an idiot if you think it's somehow important or gives you something. You have to get dressed up in lovely clothes in order to make the world believe that you are lovely. But you ain't. You're just a sinner like the rest, in need of salvation. Glory, the only glory, is God's glory and from God. Listen to Exodus 14. Have I reached there? Yes, Exodus 14, 17 to 18. Exodus 14, 17 to 18. Yes, thanks. As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Indeed, I am the glorious one. I will receive glory as judgment is done upon the heads of the Egyptians for their enslavement of my people. We pray that God may hallow his name. Hallowed be your name. That is to say, dear God, act out your name. Show us who you are. And show us who you are, especially in the salvation of your people. For that means that you will receive glory. And that's what we want. We want the Lord to be glorified. God is one and yet three. Three and yet one. Unlike, who would it possibly have invented this? It's just extraordinary. Glory in the Bible has two sorts. It's, it's the glory of, of sight. You see something glorious. I don't know if you see this very often down in Melbourne, but the sun coming up. <laughs> and it's just glorious. Glory. But glory is also weight. The weight of gold. And so the weight... Glory, glory means shining, but it also means weight, power, authority, 
goodness, righteousness, all those things which are, the Lord is covered with because he is the one who is all glorious and we need to give all glory to him. And yet, and yet as well, the Lord Jesus is glorious. I'm going to skip one and go to John 17, 3 to 5 now. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So Jesus glorifies God his Father by doing the work he was given to do, yes. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Yeah. I have glorified you, glorify me, says the Son to the Father. And then, an astonishing thing, an astonishing thing. We'll uh, uh, go straight to now 2 Corinthians 16 to 18, okay? Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Uh, The Bible tells us at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that's 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 says we are being changed from one degree of glory to another. God is making you glorious, fit for heaven, fit for being with the all-glorious one, and you will have an eternal weight, that's that weight idea, you will have an eternal weight of glory. C.S. Lewis, the great author, once said in a sermon on this very passage, he said, if you could see yourself now as you will be then, you would bow down and worship. You'd be so astonished with who you will be because you will have the glory that God gives you. And that glory is beginning now as you grow in godliness so you are being changed from one degree of true glory. Not the nonsense that goes on with status and position and ambition and success and uh, you know, the titles and all this garbage. You will have the true glory as you live a life of godliness changed from one degree of glory to another until you see him face to face and you will be clothed with glory but all you will be able to see is the glory of God in the face. Oh, look, we, we can't skip that one, can we? Verse, chapter 4, verse 6, go on. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay. The face of Jesus Christ is where you see the glory of God. Now, very quickly, because uh, the boss recognises that this talk has now gone on ten minutes longer than he bargained for. I know, I know, but it started later. True, thank you. What else can he say? (laughs) You'll get me later, don't worry. Uh, Then what is faith? What is faith? Because I want to finish there. You see... The picture of God we have here is however inadequately. I mean, we've only just started tonight, but I said he's in the room. He is here. He is listening as we are talking about him. Remember, 
if you love God, you will really want to know who he is. And so we've been absolutely blessed tonight as we've listened to the Bible tell us who God really is, at least in part so that we can see him in all his glory. Okay, just the one God who is in charge of all things. Now, what is faith? Well, everyone's got faith. Atheists have faith. Everybody must have faith. Faith is one of those things. I laugh at the atheists, uh, the scientific atheists, uh, who say, oh, you know, faith, you believe in fairies in the bottom of the garden, do you? Well, they have faith in each other. They have faith in documents. Oh, yes, this experiment has been done, and yes, that's the results. They trust. And as a matter of fact, often they shouldn't trust because they're wrong, as a matter of fact. So faith is one of those things we all, you can't live without faith. You trust other people. It's one of the most common, it is one of the most common experiences of humankind to have faith. When you eat, we had, we had a very nice Italian meal tonight, and I trusted the food. I hope rightly so. <laughs> we all have faith. Faith is confidence in the truth. But, unfortunately, faith is not always confidence in the truth. It can be confidence in error or in stupidity, like superstition is just faith. The thing that makes faith real is who you have your faith in. As a matter of fact, I don't have faith in fairies in the bottom of the garden because I believe in God. And it was belief in God which got rid of fairies and other spirits. It's the belief in the one true God who is sovereign ruler of all things which put witchcraft to death and got rid of it. So I don't believe in fairies because I believe in one God who is in charge of all things who sets us free to obey him. And this person, this God, the one we've been talking about tonight, you're going to need to know this because you'll get yourself into situations in this life which are very, very difficult. You're going to need to know this because you need to obey this God. You're going to have to do some crazy things like giving money away. This God is the true God and you can trust him. And that's the essence of human life as it ought to be. Trust in the true God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you give us the great privilege of loving you and serving you. We pray now, our gracious King, that you would bless us as we do these things and help us to have a sure confidence in the truth about you. We give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen.